0: Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, y'all ready to get in the Word? Let's do it. We're in John chapter 8. I was thinking about this week. This was some years ago. I was thinking about when my girls were really little. We were in North Carolina. And... Um, I was going upstairs just to see them and to say goodnight to them. I'd, I'd been gone most of the day. And so I came into the house. Wendy was like, no, the girls are already upstairs. I was like, okay. And so I run upstairs. All the lights were off. I never cared one second to actually turn a light on when I walked upstairs. And that, my friends, was a mistake. <laughs> because when I got up the stairs, oh, wait, forgot to tell you, I didn't have any shoes on. Uh, So I'm running up the stairs so I can say goodnight to my ladies and whatnot, and I get up there and I take a step, bam, right on a Lego. You know what I'm talking about? Fire of a thousand suns burning through my body. By the way, I love this meme. This is a rare image of a great white shark that actually stepped on a Lego. That's what I looked like when I was upstairs trying to say goodnight to my ladies. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I needed? I needed some light. That is what I needed. But I was content just to bolt right through there and I got a blessing. That's what I got. I don't know if you know this, this is an interesting and yet true story. They made a film out of it. This is in the winter of 1952. This was off the coast of Cape Cod. A hurricane force storm caused two massive ships, the SS Fort Mercer and the SS Pendleton, literally to split in half. Have you ever heard of the story? It's wild. Men set out on 36-foot lifeboats to save dozens of lives. And you can imagine just what kind of challenge that would be. It's not like the weather was accommodating. This, this, this required a lot of fortitude. And so the trip to get the surviving men, that was tough enough, but the way back had a unique challenge as they didn't have a clear direction on how to find the land. There wasn't anything to light it up that would gave them the direction on how to get back, even though they were out in the waters trying to save people. So you go, well, how did they make it back? And the short version of the longer story that you can watch in the movie, The Finest Hours, was people from that community literally drove to the shoreline and they turned their headlights on so that the people that were out and rescuing people at sea and in the water knew how they could get back. You never need to underestimate the importance of having light in your life. It will save you from Legos. (laughs) But Jesus actually said something about light. In John chapter eight, verse 12, which is where I had you turn just a little while ago, notice what it says. It says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I'm the light of the world and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When you think about what darkness is, most people say, like, well, darkness isn't like a thing in and of itself, darkness is an absence of light. Light is something that we can measure. Darkness isn't, isn't something by itself, it's an absence of something else. And so, take the picture of me going through my house or a person going through the house and then turning all the lights off. I have this question, what would you expect your experience to be once you turn all the lights off? And the answer is, I would expect my experience to be dark. And it's exactly the same way, when we turn Christ off in our life, you can expect your experience to be dark. Jesus says, I'm the light. The timing of this statement is really interesting because it came in a really important time in in Israel's calendar. So if you were to look at John chapter seven, verse 37, it tells us that this came the last day of the feast. And you go, that's great, but what feast? Because they had more than one feast or festival. And John chapter seven, verse two tells us it was the, as the Feast of Tabernacles drew close. And you go, that's great. So, what's the Feast of Tabernacles? And I'm glad you asked because here's what it is. So, every year, the people of Israel, what they would do is they would stop and they would set and portion some time to remember God having delivered them during the time of the Exodus. So they go from Egypt and they're on their journey back to the promised land. And you can imagine what it was like living at that time. You know, it's not like you have a home with, with walls and whatnot that you get to go back to every day. You're going from where you are through a journey to get to the place that you want to be. And what that means is, is as you travel, you're having to set up stationary homes and live in those. And so at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the things they would do is they might set up tents and they would go and live in the tents. And it reminded of that time when they had shelter, even though they weren't home yet, the Feast of Tabernacles. It was also came at the time after the harvest. Now, for those of you that aren't farmers, you're like, eh, but if you're a farmer, the harvest means a big deal because you've already done all of the work. You've already pulled everything out of the ground. And this was also the time at the Feast of Tabernacles where they would get together and celebrate the harvest. See, God has provided for us again. It's good to stop and to see what God has done, isn't it? It's good. So they're remembering the wilderness wandering, they're remembering a time when they didn't have a home, and they're remembering God's provision for them. Maybe we should do the same thing. But in the Feast of Tabernacles, during this feast, they did two specific things to symbolize the coming of a Messiah that they were looking for. The first was this, they, they, poured, they did what was called the pouring out of water. So the priests that during this time in John, they would go and get water from like the pool of Siloam, and then they returned to the temple. And as they did, they were citing Psalms, like Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, it's called the Psalms of Ascent. And they would recite those, and then they would pour the water out with joy to symbolize the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the people when the Messiah actually shows up. They're looking for him. And on the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and he said to them in a voice, he said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. If you're thirsty, come and drink. That's one thing they did, but they also celebrated what was called the Festival of Lights. And I've kind of given you a picture here of what this could look like. This is actually a modern day celebration of it. And then on the right, you have what might be a portrait of the way it looked like back in ancient Israel. Each year at the festival of tabernacles, they would light four huge lamps. These lamps would stand 75 feet high and they were there to illuminate Jerusalem. And because Jerusalem is up on a hill, the city would literally shine out against the backdrop of a completely darkened sky. And so, this light, according to Jewish rabbis, was symbolic of God's Shekinah glory that led them through the wilderness and also looked forward to the promised glory to return to Israel when the Messiah was going to show up. There's a light, and it just breaks through the darkness. That's what they did. So, do you see this theme of the importance of light in Scripture? Look at some of the other themes from the word about what, why the light matters. Look at First John chapter 1, verse five, here's what it says. It says, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. And it reminds us, as we read this verse, he's pure and he's holy, but the light helps us see God for who he is. And that's what we need. Uh, something that struck me, closeness to God does not necessarily mean that you're going to feel holier. In fact, being close to God might make you feel dirtier. I'm reminded of this Uh, in Isaiah chapter six. He's having this profound vision and experience of God And, and standing before God, he said, woe is me, I'm ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips. Isaiah, you think about it, he was a prophet of God. He's, if there's a pyramid, he's pretty high up on the pyramid. But when he found himself in front of God, he doesn't come out thinking something like this. I feel so holy and good and so close to God. He said, woe is me because of his experience of God. Maybe when we get closer to God, because of the way the light shines in us, we see even more of how we're not him. We're just not him. It reminded me of this I don't know how many of you know this but back in the day I was actually in a band. I played the jug. <laughs> I'm kidding I didn't do that. I played guitar and I was a vocalist and we even like wrote our own music. We even recorded Welcome to Church. But I was thinking about this. There was this time uh, Phil Kage was coming into concert and I don't expect all of you to know who he is, but there's this story that goes back where Jimi Hendrix was asked in yesteryear, man, what is it like to be the greatest guitarist like on the earth? And he was like, well, it's not me because there was this guy that opened for me and he was actually talking about Phil Kage. I mean, he is that good. He is missing a finger on his right hand. It looks like this. He's still gonna be better than you and he doesn't even have that finger. So I told my band, I was like, have you ever seen Phil Kagey live? And they're like, no, I was like, we've got to go. And so we go and we're watching Phil Kagi. And by the time he was done playing, here's the way I felt. I don't want to play guitar ever again. <laughs> I, am, I am so bad. I don't even want to pick it up. Now I kept playing, but you understand what I'm getting? That's how Isaiah felt when he encountered God. I can't even play. He is so other than me. I can't even play. That's one of the things the light can do, is it helps you see God for who he is. And in seeing God for who he is, you see who you are not. You are not him. Here's something else, Psalm 36, 9. It says, for with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. In other words, he helps us to see things like he does. This is the way he sees it. And as we see it in that moment, we actually have a choice on whether or not we're going to agree with him in it, but it's not for a lack of him telling us what he thinks. That's why we have the word. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and it is the critic of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Your heart. The word will break all the way down to the very depth of who you are. And it exposes things. And as it exposes things, we have this choice. How are we going to react to that? Hold on to that thought. Because as you read John chapter three, verses 20 and 21, notice what it says. It says, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Ever been there? Ever been there? Because if so, you're exactly like Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter three. Remember, after the fall, what did they do? They went and they hid. Why? Because as it describes, God comes and walks among them, and is basically like, "Hey, where are y'all at?" And they're over behind the shrubs. They're hiding. And you have a couple of possibilities in the way that you respond in this moment. You can step back out and say, look, I've made a mistake, but I wanna get this back right. Or you can hide behind the shrubs. This is what John chapter three, verse 20 is saying. We typically do is what? We don't wanna come into the light for the fear that we're gonna be exposed. We don't like it. There's something about the gospel, and I've always said this. The good news of Jesus is offensive. I don't want somebody to reject Christ because I'm offensive, because the gospel is offensive enough. It exposes us for what we are, it shows us our need for him, and then it puts it at our feet to respond to it. That's the way it works. But it goes on to say, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. God exposes what's in us. Um, this is something that, that kind of struck me this week because one of the first evidences of the light of grace coming into your life is that you have eyes to see the sin that is in your heart. I was talking with uh, somebody that's become a good friend, uh, a, a professional counselor. They're not a believer. And so they had visited four, five, six times. And then we got together, I had visited church. And they said, we noticed that you, you talk about a lot of stuff you know, at the church, you sure do. But a lot of times so that this theme of sin kind of comes up quite a bit. And I said, well, because that's in the Bible, so we talk about it. I said, but something to think about. I said, we don't just talk about sin. We talk about more than that, but we have to talk about that. You're a licensed professional counselor, right? Yep. I said, I want you to imagine that you have a person in your office that is diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Do you think it would be odd if you actually never talked about that with them? And they said, yeah, I think it would. I said, well, there you go. We think it'd be a little bit odd if we didn't talk about some things. We do, but you know what? We also talk about more than sin. We talk about Jesus. We talk about hope. We talk about a lot of things because we need the rest of the story. Sin, we don't want to have the final word. We want Jesus to have the final word. His grace is sufficient. It's enough. It's what you need. So this theme of darkness, I want you to imagine you're in a filthy room. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Imagine you're in a filthy room and it's completely dark stuff. It's disheveled. Everything's out of place. But you know, you couldn't tell. You know, Why is because you were in the dark? And then you ask this question, is this room messy? And then you might say something like this. Well, it's pitch black, so I don't know. And if you wanted to be known as a clean person, even though you're filthy, if you want to be known as a clean person, you would say something like this. Yeah, it's really clean in here. And then you might even do something like this. Take Febreze. You know? And you you start spraying Febreze around the room and you go, Ooh, lemon zest, rather than sporty socks. (laughs) But then I light then I light like my I take my iPhone out and I turn the light on. It's a little light, but it's light. And you look around and you go, Well, okay. I see the socks on the floor. And uh Actually, I see somehow that dresser got turned over over there. I don't even know how that happened, but it did. And then I want to up you. I hand you a flashlight and it's like, boom, and you turn it on. And then I want to up you again and actually just turn the lights on in the room. And at that moment, you cannot help but see the dust on the top of the furniture and the mildew around your baseboards. And you go, it's about time we start cleaning this place. That's the way the light works. That's the way it works. Think about this from Matthew chapter four, verse 16. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Friends, we we all were living in a shadow of death. But for those who took Jesus, a light has dawned. This is the beautiful part of the story. There's a hope and there's a way out. There's a way out for you. So let me talk about you. And right now, the you I want to talk about is for those of you that have given your life to Jesus. You think of that time. Scripture actually says there's a second light. Don't know if you know that. So just as the sun, S-U-N, pictures the son of God, which is Jesus, so the moon actually pictures believers in Scripture. Jesus, speaking to those that follow him, actually said, you are the light of the world, And that's kind of scary because he's expecting us to own it. We're supposed to shine. We're supposed to look different. The second light is seen in Genesis as the moon. The moon was created to give light. When the earth and everything around it goes dark, the moon was created to give light. But here's the catch. It's a reflected light. It's a reflected light. The moon doesn't have any light of its own. It only reflects as much of itself that is exposed to the light of the sun. And that's what Christians are supposed to be. We don't have the light on our own, but we reflect the light of Christ so that in all of the darkness that's around you, Jesus might be seen. And Jesus is telling you, Christian, own that part. Own that part, the world needs it. Here's another way of capturing it. You are the Clark Griswolds of the world. Does everybody know what I'm talking about? Christmas vacation. I love the scene when he lights his house up for the first time, because that's his reaction, right? It's like power goes on, boom. You could send signals to people on the moon with this guy's house at Christmas time. Well, that's what Jesus told us to be. It's what he told us to be. If you cannot remember you are the light of the world, you need to remember you are the Clark Griswolds of the world. Whatever makes it stick, I'm encouraging you this morning to own it. Think about this in 1 John 1, 6. It's kind of a cautionary tale, but it's important for us. It says, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we're lying. And we're not practicing the truth. You notice the word practice? We're not not actually doing the truth. So if we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness... I want to make an important distinction because I think John is making this distinction First John 1. There's a person who at one time has confessed Christ but is now not living in step with Christ. Here's what he says. You break koinonia with him. You break fellowship with him. So I was thinking about it this week. Earlier this week, um, Wendy and a couple of the girls asked if I would watch The Bachelor with them. And so I did. And uh, as I was watching it, so they, 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 they went to Malta. They're like, girls, pack your bags. You're going on a trip. And they're like, woo. And, and then they go to Malta. And I was like, hey, Wendy, we've been to Malta. Hey, we've been right at that spot. And we keep watching it. Okay, but it got me thinking. If I dated girls the way that this guy does. <laughs> girls, I'm gonna line 25 of you up. And uh, at the end, I'm going to propose to one of you. You're so lucky. <laughs> if I actually did this show in real life, you would have a word for me. The, the kind word is that guy's a player, right? But if you put it on TV, and I was just thinking while the show was going on, if you fund it, you know that dude ain't paying for however many women to go to Malta? Come on. But if you get this TV station behind you and you can throw it on Hulu or whatever, you get the funding and all of a sudden it just becomes different. And I just thought, but if I did that, uh, no, nope. But it got me thinking about something else. Could I say to Wendy, could I say something like this? I wanna be married to you, uh, but I wanna maintain my relationship with other lovers. I would never say that by the way, it's just an example, right? <laughs> I want to be married to you, but I want to maintain my relationship with other lovers. Or what if I said something like this? Look, I don't want you to worry about them. Don't worry about them. You're my number one of all of them. (laughs) How how well do you think that would go? She's right over here. how well do you think that this would go? I call it a hunch, but I would bet it wouldn't go well. Here's what she wouldn't be doing. I don't think in that moment she would be questioning our marriage status. I don't think she'd be doing that. I think she would be saying, we're married, right? We're married. I think what she'd be doing is questioning our fellowship with each other. What do you think? She doesn't wanna wanna hear me say something like this, but girl, don't worry about those other girls. You're you're number one of all of them. Oh, that feels good. That doesn't feel good. You know, here's what I think she would want to hear. I don't want to be number one. I want to be the only one. I think it would be something like that. But if I really did that, it'd be a lot spicier than that, just so you know. I want to be the only one. It's the way it's supposed to be. I think this is what Jesus is trying to tell you this morning. I'm not one among a number. I'm the only one. I'm it. I am it. I, I love this, this beautiful verse in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I, I love what one person says they were commenting on this verse. It said, it didn't say he's merciful and kind to forgive you for your sins. It says he's faithful and just. He will. He will. So I'm reminded of this promise from this beautiful hymn, maybe you've heard it before. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and he pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all of my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and to pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace." One in himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. You need him today. You need him today. And I've been at this, I'm 48. I gave my life to Jesus when I was 11. I still need him today. I still need him today. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.